You're listening to the Doc Lounge Podcast. This is a place for candid conversations with healthcare industry's top physicians, executives, and thought leaders. This podcast is made possible by Pacific Companies, your trusted advisor in physician recruitment. I am your host, Summer Gilbert, and I am the Director of Marketing and Branding here at Pacific Companies. And sitting beside me today co-hosting is Pacific Companies COO, the one and only John Polk. Today's podcast is going to be a good one. We're talking to Dr. Mohamed Chima, board-certified family practice physician, and he's also board-certified in something that we all need, something very important. Drum roll, please. Sleep medicine. Dr. Chima is based out of Louisiana, and he has his own private practice, which is the Sleep Center of New Orleans. Really excited to talk to Dr. Chima today and learn more about sleep medicine, so let's get started. And just a quick reminder, this podcast is intended to be an open forum. Any personal beliefs, views, or opinions represented in this episode are that of our guest and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Pacific Companies. So please have an open mind and remember that this podcast is not a news source, but rather a safe and neutral platform for candid conversations. Well, Dr. Chima, thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to have the opportunity to speak with you. Uh, Right out of the box here, how'd you sleep last night? I slept okay, pretty good. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, that's good. I'm I'm most interested in learning about your practice and, and with respect to sleep medicine and find out a little bit about what you might be able to share with our listeners. So I'm, I'm curious. I, had, I asked a few other people who are listeners uh, to our podcast uh, a number of questions. And, and the, one of the things that came up is, yeah, I, was, I, I, I read this. People were asking about what kind of impact is there on, you know, those hospitalists that you come in contact with, I'm sure, from time to time that are nocturnists working those uh, 7P to 7A hours over and over and over again. I, I just got to ask you, what sort of impact does that have on the quality of our life, uh, asking a sleep specialist? So that's a very good question, uh, especially being in a medical field. Um, speaking of hospitalists, uh, I'm actually one of the hospitalists also, along with being a sleep uh, medicine specialist. So I work in the hospital, and I have done those uh, night shifts uh, from time to time. Uh, but the, to answer your question, on regular basis for people who are nocturnists, you have to look and see what type of a person it is and what their daily habits are. So it falls into the category of shift work disorder. So people who are working night shift, their sleep is going to be disturbed in the daytime. That's, you know, without a doubt. It's just a matter of how well can they cope with it. And, you know, some people are just uh, nocturnal. They stay awake at nighttime and they sleep late into the daytime. So if, uh, if, if you're that person, then it works well for you. For me, as a, a sleep medicine specialist, I, you know, when I've tried the night shifts, I don't think they, they're good for me. Therefore, I don't, I don't pick up those shifts or even volunteer to do them. Now, I do have patients who come in and they have a schedule where they're working 11P to 7A or sometimes 7P to 7A. So we have this discussion in uh, regards to their work schedule. And if they are having difficulty sleeping in the daytime, then my recommendation 
to them is that they may need to change their uh, schedule at work if, you know, depending on what they can do or they cannot, uh, they would benefit from changing their schedule and then uh, you see how that will, works for them. So in your experience, there, there really is some validity to the claim that some people make that I'm a night owl. Yes. Yes, there is. So those people, usually if uh, putting it into a medical term, you would say somebody has delayed sleep phase disorder. That means they just go to sleep very late and they wake up very late. So their circadian rhythms are pushed back a little bit. And then because their body adheres to certain schedule over time, it becomes a norm for them. So those people, you can tell them to sleep early. They're 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 not going to, <laughs> because they're night owl. They they they're more productive at nighttime than they would be early in the morning. Interesting. I always wrote it off to somebody just was staying up too late, and then they end up sleeping in. But uh, maybe it's not a choice. It's a maybe they're just wired differently than we are. What was it that uh, got you interested in pursuing? your specialty in sleep medicine to begin with? So that's a very interesting question, and it's uh, the answer to it is pretty long. I even wrote a paper on that answer <laughs> and uh, published in peer review, so to speak. Uh, 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 it's uh, interesting in a sense that when I started my residency, uh, I, I was feeling a little... Um, Actually, I got married right before I started residency. So once I got married, I was obviously, uh, as the saying goes, once you get married, you're going to put on a few pounds. So <laughs> I I felt like I put on maybe 15, 20 pounds, and it was mainly due to just going and eating, uh, having you know different parties and this and that, and going to people's houses and celebrating and eating a lot of food. But another thing that I noted was my... Uh, my stamina was very decreased, so I would I couldn't go up maybe more than one or two flights of stairs without getting really tired, and I'm talking about huffing and puffing tired. So I talked with my wife, and I was like, you know what? I know I'm out of shape, but I can't be this bad. You know, I uh, I, I have uh, uh, just go up one flight of stairs, and I'm uh, huffing and puffing like somebody who has heart failure. So. Uh, you know, it was uh, during that time. I she's like, well, keep an eye on it and see what happens. And then um, at the same time, uh, the other thing that happened was I was at home, and my mother had her blood pressure machine, which you put on your wrist. And she got angry, and she was like, hey, this machine doesn't work. So I said, mom, let me check it. So I checked my blood pressure. And it shows like 220 over 130. So I started laughing with it. I was like, you're right. This machine is bogus. So I went and bought a new one, brought it back, and said, Mom, check it now. And she checks it. And she's like, oh, this one is good. It's working well. I said, okay, fine. I never bothered to check my blood pressure. So three, four months go by. That happened again. And uh, same thing. She's like, ah, this machine's no good. I said, what? I check it. And same thing. My blood pressure is like 230 over 120. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, these machines, they really don't work. So I went back, got another one, and then she said, oh, this one is good. So same exact scenario happened twice. And then the third time, I actually had taken my father to his cardiologist appointment. And while we were waiting there, he asked me to go get something from the grocery store nearby. 
And as I go there, I see these blood pressure machines that they have to check your, you know, if you're healthy or not. So I sit there to check my blood pressure, and sure enough, it was 230 over 120 or 115. And I sat there, you know, totally uh, uh, not not trying to understand what's going on with myself. So I said, well, maybe I just walked in too fast, and that's why pressure is high. So let me just sit for a couple of minutes. So after sitting for a few minutes, I checked it again, and sure enough, it was still elevated. And that's when I everything started to circle in my head. I was like, wow. Three months ago, it was elevated, and three months before that, it was elevated. So, again, I spoke with my wife. I was like, I think my blood pressure is pretty high. I don't know what's going on. So I went and saw the physician. They gave me some beta blockers, and it stabilized. And then coming back to why sleep medicine, I actually was in my residency. I was uh, uh, standing with one of my attendings. And uh, it was a surgery uh, surgery rotation, and uh, he just we're standing there looking at some of the patients. Like, oh yeah, you know, we do this procedure laparoscopically now, and the procedure was to take out adrenal gland uh, for adrenal adenoma. So nonchalant, I told him, I'm like, oh hey, I think I have one of those. So he looks over at me, he's like, really? And um, I said, yes, but it's it's no big deal. He goes, well. Uh, how's your blood pressure? So, yeah, blood pressure is a little bit elevated, but no big deal. I'm uh, on uh, beta blockers. It's fine. So he goes, do you have headaches? And I say, yeah, well, no big deal. I just have a little bit of headache. Ty- uh, I take Tylenol or ibuprofen, takes care of it. And then uh, he tells me, he's like, well, why don't you look into this and see if you are you are okay? And then, again, that was the second time. And I, then I started to do some workup on myself and come to find out I have Cushing's disease. Hmm. And Cushing's disease, what that does is it makes you gain a lot of weight because of uh, excessive hormone production and uh, causes you to have sugar diabetes, causes your cholesterol to go out of whack, your blood pressure. So I was more concerned about another disease known as pheochromocytoma that can cause very high blood pressures. So uh, long story short, we looked at it, and sure enough, I had all the signs and symptoms of that. So at nighttime when I would sleep, my wife would tell me, she goes, hey, you're snoring, and at times you stop breathing. So I said, really? And she's like, you need to get it looked at. And that was uh, close to the time when I had decided that I was going to go ahead and get the surgery done for the adrenal adenoma. And once I had the surgical intervention done, um I felt a lot better, and in terms of sleep apnea, I I never really pursued to look into it, uh, but I was very sleepy in the daytime, I was snoring at nighttime, I would stop breathing at nighttime, and then I was just dragging throughout the day, and I blamed it either on Cushing's or being worked too much at residency, And uh, but after the surgery was performed, my diabetes was back to normal. I had no more diabetes. Cholesterol was back to normal, no more cholesterol problems. And till this day, knock on wood, I haven't had any problems with blood pressure and I haven't been on any medication since then. And after the surgery, I lost about maybe 60 pounds uh, because during this uh, whole time, I kept gaining more and more pounds. So I I started off with like 180 pounds and I was up to 250. And then after surgery, I came back down to 180 and uh, been doing good so far. And that's when 
after my residency, I decided, you know what, I want to look into a fellowship, and then sleep medicine came along, and then I started sleep medicine and been loving it ever since. What a great story. Thank you for sharing that with us. Uh, well, no, it's it's interesting how you arrived at uh, the, your current destination. I have read that uh, statistically one in four adults has some form of sleep disorder. Is that accurate? Yes. Wow. And wow. more than half of them are gone undiagnosed with uh, with sleep disorder breathing. And a lot of it has to do, I mean, well, I understand that there are also some implications, long-term health implications. I think that's increasingly common knowledge now, but talk to us a little bit about that. So, uh, so sleep apnea, and I would, I would uh, step back and actually talk about the field of sleep medicine. Uh, field of sleep medicine, as we all know, you know, ever since, the man was created, they had to sleep. So it's been going on since the day of the first person who came onto the earth. Uh, and uh, it's been going on all this time, but nobody has really addressed sleep as an intricate part of our life. We've always taken sleep for granted. And what we say is, uh, I want to sleep when I want to sleep. I want to wake up when I want to wake up. And when I do these things, I want to be fully refreshed. So we want sleep to be at our beck and call. But that's not how it is. We, our body is created in a way where we go through different processes during the daytime, and sleep plays an important role in certain hormones that are produced at nighttime, cortisol, melatonin, the thyroid-stimulating hormone, growth hormone. These are all necessary for our development as, uh, from a physical standpoint and uh, from the memory standpoint. So when we alter any of these things, we're going to have consequences. And if somebody has sleep apnea, which causes decrease in oxygenation at nighttime, then that's going to, going to cause problems in our internal organs. And if we start from head to toe, now researchers have found out that uh, obstructive sleep apnea is an independent risk factor for stroke. And if somebody has had a stroke, then it puts them at very high risk of having recurrent stroke if sleep apnea is not evaluated and treated. Then if you come down, then you're looking at the heart. The effect on the heart, it can cause you to have heart attacks. It can cause you to have uh, congestive heart failure. Your lungs get, uh, um, uh, you know, you can have pulmonary hypotension in the lungs. And then it can affect your liver, your kidneys. Everything inside gets affected. And when I'm talking to my patients, I explain to them in a very simple way. I tell them, our body, we survive with oxygen. If we deprive ourselves of oxygen, what's going to happen to us? And usually the answer is we're going to die. So what's happening with sleep apnea is at nighttime, our body is being deprived of oxygen at a smaller level, which has an effect on a long term. So slowly, slowly things from inside start to deteriorate or have to work overtime just to compensate for that lack of oxygenation. And that's how it causes problems uh, in our heart, in our kidneys, in our lungs, in our brain, and uh, so on and so forth. I, I have read recently I, I lost my father to some form of dementia. It was vascular dementia or Alzheimer's. But I understand that there's now a link between sleep, the quality or the amount thereof, 
and Alzheimer's. Is that correct? Is that your understanding as well? Yeah, so so they are finding out a lot more about uh, sleep apnea or the disturbed sleep causing problem uh, in patients to have higher level of uh, Alzheimer's. They look at some biomarkers in the brain, and uh, they found out that uh, there's the, these biomarkers uh, or neurons in the brain that have tau uh, uh, compatibilities. And then when that is, uh, it's a protein that's uh, made in the brain, and uh, it, it, it kind of points towards Alzheimer's. And if it's increased, then uh, it's going to be one of those things where you know you're at higher risk of having that disease process. Hmm. I'm curious as to what you have to say about the prevalence now of wearable devices, and I, I by the way, have one, and I'm always interested to see what it has to say about the quality of sleep that I got the night before. Are you a proponent of such devices? You see value in them? Uh, so when we're talking about wearable devices, are we talking about CPAP, mandibular advancement devices? Uh, what, is uh, there anything specific? More like a like an, uh, an eye watch or a Fitbit or something along those lines that people have on their wrists that are giving them uh, that kind of information. I wear one to bed. It gives me a report a mobile app that tells me how much light sleep, how much I was awake, REM, as well as deep sleep, that sort of basic thing. Yeah, so that's a, uh, that's an interesting and a very, very good question you ask. Uh, it depends on what you gain from those wearable devices. Um, what I tell patients is there's two things. So, so I'm not... 100% for it, and I'm not 100% against it. And the reason for that is uh, it, it's information, right? So information right. helps us either improve or change our lifestyle to improve. So if you're wearing the device and it's helping you understand, it's making you more recognizant of how your sleep should be or how your sleep is. So if at any time you feel like your sleep is not to where you need it to be, then you're at a higher chance you're going to be looking for help and you're going to seek help and fix it, right? Versus a person who doesn't have one of those devices and doesn't know anything about their sleep, they're, go they're not going to pursue what's going on and they might be uh, at disadvantage of uh, seeking help. So it's information and a feedback loop, and it depends on the individual doing something about it. I, I want to also ask you about what I have read, and of course you're the expert on this, is the prevalence of FaceTime, uh, screen time, as it's more commonly referred to, I believe, and the blue screen and the impact that they may have societally in terms of undermining uh, the rest of us getting enough sleep. What are your thoughts? So... So, yeah, it goes back to the, the basics of uh, how the light transmits through our eyes into our brain and what signals it's sending us. And uh, that's basically what happens. So I tell my patients when I'm talking to them, uh, my recommendations are always if you are having trouble sleeping at nighttime, then you must start to uh, incorporate these steps in your lifestyle to improve your sleep. If you're a person that can be on iPad and if they want to sleep at 9 o'clock, they turn over and they go to sleep and they wake up fresh, well, you don't have a problem. Uh, although it's not good sleep hygiene, at least you don't have a problem, right? 
So for those I'm not so worried, I will still explain to them that the um, good sleep hygiene is this, and this is what you should do, because you never know when it's going to become a problem for you. So what my recommendations usually to the patients who are having difficulty sleeping at nighttime is to uh, take themselves away from any kind of electronics at least hour, hour and a half before their bedtime. So if somebody wants to sleep at 10 o'clock at night, and uh, they then I tell them to stop watching TV or, you know, no cell phones, no iPads or anything, at least hour or hour and a half before their bedtime because they need their, their body to wind down. And, um, you know, it's, uh, when I talk to them, it's a it's very simple concept. It's what you put in is what you're going to get out, right? So if you put light into these uh, uh, cells, they're going to respond with saying, wake up because that's what happens in the morning time. It goes back to circadian rhythms. Our circadian rhythms, they look at light and say, relate to that, okay, it's time to wake up or staying awake. So if we give that same light at nighttime, our brain and our mind is thinking, hey, don't go to sleep, it's time to stay awake. So we're fooling our body into doing something that it's not supposed to be doing. And I know there's a lot of uh, effort being made from... uh, from the iPhone companies and iPad companies to do uh, changing the light to a blue to yellow and night light. But you have to understand even those uh, different uh, wavelengths still transmit certain amount of uh, uh, um, uh, uh, energy to our brain cells that makes them want to stay awake. So I have an interesting question. My husband is a firefighter, and so a lot of times he'll come home having no sleep. Um, but then mainly in his line of duty, he'll be asleep and then, um, the alarm goes off. He wakes up, goes on his call, comes back, goes to sleep two hours later, wakes up, alarm goes off, comes back, goes to sleep. So it's this disturbed sleep pattern. What are the health implications of that? Right. So that's, uh, that goes back to, uh, fragmented sleep or disturbed sleep at nighttime. So the more times we wake up or disturb our sleep at night, it's going to take an effect on our overall health and it's going to affect us in the daytime. So even when somebody has uh, sleep apnea, the underlying problem is that the sleep apnea is causing them to wake up multiple times during the night. And when we calculate that, uh, when we look at the overall night sleep and we see if they have sleep apnea, we calculate their uh, average disturbance per hour. So if a person has significant amount of awakenings per hour, then they're going to be sleepy, and it's going to have a negative implication on their overall health. Yeah. Would you share with us and our listeners uh, some tips about sleep hygiene? I, when I've referenced this uh, in the past to some people I talk to, they look at me funny like, what are you talking about? So maybe you could help educate those listeners of ours and as well as some of your colleagues who are seeing patients in a primary care setting that may not have a lot of understanding of what to spot and how to treat or advise patients. Yes, so that's a uh, that's very, very important aspect of our overall uh, improvement in our health. And uh, what I usually tell patients and uh, colleagues or friends, whoever's uh, wondering about how they can improve their overall uh, sleep habits, I tell them to keep a consistent sleep schedule. Get up at the same time every day, 
even on the weekends or during the vacation time because we're going to uh, set ourselves uh, differently if we keep changing our schedule uh, of waking up. And I tell patients and uh, friends that we have one thing in our control. We What we control is waking up. We It's hard to control going to sleep because you don't know how long it's going to take you to go to sleep. So waking up is in our control. So we need to set a time when we're going to wake up on every day. Weekends, vacations, weekdays, we're going to wake up at you know 7 o'clock in the morning. When we start to adhere to that schedule, then our sleep schedule, going to sleep, is going to also improve. So we want to set a bedtime that is early enough for us to get at least seven hours of sleep. And National Institute of Health has done significant amount of research and come up with this number where they're recommending in an adult they should be sleeping from seven to nine hours per day. If anybody sleeps less than six hours, there are health implications. If somebody sleeps more than nine hours, it puts them at high risk of having uh, health problems also. So it's a very narrow window that we need to sleep between seven to nine hours. I recommend eight hours, which makes sense in between both, right? So if you go to sleep at 11 o'clock at night, you wake up at 7, it puts you right in that window. And that time frame or that time of the day is the best time to be getting your sleep. So the other thing I tell them is not to go to bed unless they are sleepy. Because if you start to build a habit of laying in bed and wondering, your mind starts to wonder, or you play on a phone or iPad, then that's going to be the habit that your body uh, stars to adhere to every day. So when you really want to go to sleep early, you get in bed, the body says, hey, I have 45 minutes, I'm going to be on the phone or I'm just going to think about everything else. So you'll never be able to fall asleep right away. So you want to go to bed uh, only when you are sleepy. And if you don't fall asleep in about 20 minutes, get up and out of the bed. Don't don't uh, keep the... Uh, the bed should only be only used for... Two things, both of them start with S. One is sleep, and the other one you can figure it out on your own. <laughs> and those are the only two things that should be done in bed. So what the other thing I say is to make the bed uh, bedroom environment very quiet and relaxing. Temperature should be good. Uh, you know, if, if you like some kind of white noise, you can incorporate that. Uh, want to limit the light exposure into the bedroom, especially if somebody's having problems at uh, sleeping. And uh, people who suffer from insomnia, I tell them to take the clocks out of their bedroom, no, no, you know, have some uh, uh, blackout shades that would help them keep the, uh, the, the bedroom quiet and dark. And then sometimes even, uh, you know, uh, exercising. There's different thoughts about exercising at what time of day you should exercise. Uh, so I usually recommend early in the evening or in the afternoon. That way it gives your body to uh, uh, wind down. But if somebody is exercising hour or two hours before going to bed and it helps them go to bed, then I'm okay with that also. And a couple of things that I like to tell them to avoid um, or at least uh, decrease as much as possible, one is caffeine. So they should not be drinking any coffee after uh, uh, in the evening or uh, in the afternoon, and then uh, uh, any uh, try to decrease the fluid intake. Uh, if no smoking before going to bed, because nicotine is uh, uh, something that will make you more awake. And then obviously 
alcohol before going to bed also will cause you to have disturbance in sleep. And alcohol has its own uh, mechanism, how it causes you to be drowsy, yet it affects your sleep in a negative way. Yeah, what great advice. And it's super valuable. I feel like sleep is not brought up enough. It's something that we talk about and I think a lot of people take lightly and it's really, really important. So I found this podcast fascinating so far. So thank you so much. And I hope our listeners uh, can learn a lot from this as well. Uh, We are pretty much out of time, but I have one more question. And this is one that we like to ask our physicians in closing. Looking back, is there anything that you know now that you wish you knew coming out of residency? Um, In regards to sleep medicine, I wish I was taught a little bit more about sleep medicine. And uh, I'm not going to take too much time, but I feel like a lot of uh, primary care physicians uh, uh, are deprived of the knowledge because uh, they haven't been trained. And I remember myself uh, when I was in residency receiving these sleep study reports on patients not knowing what to do. Uh, I would just look at it, and, I, 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 and I'm being very honest. I even had a patient, the nurse gives me the report, it's like, oh, this patient has sleep study, here are the results. And I look at it, and I see this gibberish in there. And I'm like, okay, just put it in the chart. And I didn't know what to do about it. So I think there needs to be education uh, at that level in regards to sleep medicine. And, uh, you know, it starts out with one person. And uh, I have started doing that with a residency program where I trained. I go there and lecture them at least once or twice a year in uh, in regards to uh, sleep habits. As As a resident, we can easily get bogged down with working too much or not getting enough sleep. So we have to look over ourselves and then uh, learn about what we can do to help others, especially at that level of uh, training. It's terrific that you're doing that. It's been a pleasure to speak with you, Dr. Chima. Yeah, it's been very nice. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, no problem. And if any of your listeners are in, uh, how do I say it, New Orleans? New Orleans. New Orleans. <laughs> New Orleans. <laughs> um, check out, it's New Orleans uh, Sleep Center. Yes. Yes. Um, and we'll link that in the description so that people can check you out. But thanks again, and we hope you have a great rest of your day. Thank you very much. Happy holidays. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you to all our listeners. If you'd like to be notified when new episodes air, make sure to hit that subscribe button. And thank you to Pacific Companies. Without you guys, this podcast would not be possible. If you'd like to be a guest or for more information, go to www.pacificcompanies.com.